first uh, and hopefully a, a long, proud uh, tradition and series of Criterion Collective. Hopefully, uh, we don't end up getting sued. And if we do, hopefully we win. And if we don't, hopefully it's a good story. We don't have lawyers, or maybe <laughs> Jesus does. Well, okay. So anyways, this is a production of the Dawes Center for the Arts. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Dawes Center for the Arts is a not Do they have lawyers? The Dawes Center for the Arts is a, is a not-for-profit based in Pomona, California, uh, where we, uh, where we, um, we're an art gallery as well as an art space, and we, you know, serve the community of Pomona, and uh, now that the whole world's on the internet, we serve the world. So uh, we're really, really excited, uh, the three of us together today. Uh, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Matt Cedillo, the literary director of the Dawes Center for the Arts. I'm Jean Marie Spikutsev, Seasons and Muse Incorporated, and Seasons and Muse Studios. Um, I'm David A. Romero, nationally touring spoken word artist. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about The Seventh Seal, uh, which is a film directed by Ingmar Bergman, came out in, I believe, 1957, and uh, it's a classic. So um, you want to, you want to, why don't we just go around? David, what, what, what are your first, what, how do you want to enter this conversation? All right, so yeah, um, I'm the one who actually advocated for this to be our first film. I thought, here we are, it's uh, uh, May 2nd, 2020. We are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let this be said for posterity, you know, just so people know what the, what the cultural milieu was. So we are in the middle of our equivalent of our Spanish flu or our bubonic plague. So what <laughs> better film to kick off this series than with a film that is about disease, that is about, I think really specifically about people's uh, reactions to disease and the role of artists, all three of us being uh, poets and artists in various media, the role of artists in the midst of um, an existential threat, um, how we reflect upon death in general, but specifically, um, when there is a sickness spreading through the land, how we respond to it, um, how we try to make a living, how we process it. Um, and I think this film has a lot to say about it. It's extremely relevant. Um, I, I've commented that watching part of this movie feels like watching the documentary um, right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, Jean? I, um, I was, it had been a while since I'd seen The Seventh Seal and I remember seeing it for the first time um, because I was compelled by the notion of the knight playing chess with death. Um, just that image and idea alone is so hauntingly compelling, I think. And what struck me this time watching it again was how poetic the language is. That oh. really struck me, um, especially for those of us who are reading subtitles. Um, and I love to read the subtitles and then hear the words spoken, the poetry of the language spoken and read. Um, so I agree with you. It's definitely a response to, I think David's right. I think it's a response we see the response to the disease, how different people respond differently. And that you're right, like most of the people who are the subjects of this movie are artists in some form. So we think, we almost feel like we're, we're seeing Igmar Bergman's 
response to this through these characters too. So that's really interesting and confronting death, obviously, literally and figuratively. So yeah, I was very taken by that too. It's very interesting. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we selected this movie and I got the, the homework assignment from, from David yesterday to, to watch the rewatch the movie, um, I was of course excited. I know that too well. Was that? <laughs> No, I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. But like, but, I, I, you know, to watch it again um, was really was really striking because it really when I think of like uh, some of these Bergman movies, especially the ones that like way in the past, um, I always think of like it, it always reminds me of Kurosawa, like when people just break out in these conversations like pardon you by the side of the road. What is the meaning of all this? You know, like when it's like, the, you know, like it's just very like they're walking by each other and also they have this big philosophical debate about like the meaning of life and, and death and like why things, you know, like it's kind of like. I kind of wish life was like that, like, you know, but I, and I kind of don't, like, sometimes it, I wish life was like it that. It is like that, though. That's the thing. I studied art history in Italy for a summer, and walking around Florence, I'd be asking, where is the bakery? Um, and I would have people who clean the streets talking to me about Aristotle, about uh, opera, um, about one wanted to get into a conversation with me about um, St. Augustine. And I was like, this is really cool. <laughs> I really, I've got to come back here and like live here. Um, so interestingly enough, that's why that kind of, we see that because that actually is a facet of life in Europe, interestingly mm -hmm. enough. Well, I, I think that like life can be that way here too, but it's, it's the assistant managerial class that ruins that. Right? Is the people cracking down and be like, get back to work, right? Because like I guarantee you if his boss There's no time. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't pay you to sweep streets. Yeah, I don't pay you to like talk about Aristotle, <laughs> like you know, there's some there's some dust on that cobblestone. Get to it. Right. Like oh, I know Matt, you had told me about in your travels to Cuba that you had had experiences that were similar to that. Yeah. Well. Yeah, people the culture like, there. Yeah, and it's 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 it's, it's, it's like kind of like it's it's wonderful, but it's also like you're not used to it. Like today, today I was going through a coffee drive-through, and this guy like sprung up a conversation. Was like asking me like what I was doing and how I'd been, and, what I was up to. and I was like thinking to myself like, God damn, dude, like this is cool. Like you know, like we're just we're, we're vibing as human beings right now, but we're setting ourselves up for tragedy because like you're gonna get my order. There's a line behind me. I'm gonna have to drive, or or, or I'm gonna be like violating uh, the social contract that we have in the Starbucks line. Um, <laughs> I will actually, in being human, be committing a great social faux pas, right? Because like I, I will be holding up the line. No, I really thought this. He was really asking me. He's like, he just like he was like, how? Well, how was your day? I'm like, it's going good. And how about you? He's like, well, I'm doing well. What have you been up to today? Right? And I don't want to like tell him. Oh, well, earlier, I was chatting with this guy known as the world's greatest aphorist. How about you? Because that's gonna like, oh, what's an aphorism? And then we talk about, then we talk about aphorisms, and then and then all of a sudden like you know this. And so I was just like. This is really setting us up for it's like buying a puppy because you know like you're gonna outlive the puppy and you're gonna like you're gonna know the puppy long enough to love the puppy and then the puppy's gonna die right so like we're gonna set up this conversation i'm gonna start telling you something you're gonna get invested i'm gonna get invested right right and then right. you have to go like do we have to <laughs> do this as much as you may want to as much as i appreciate the invitation we can't have this conversation and you know and that is because Mm. Of, the, of the assistant managerial class of which i used to be a member you know i'm, oh, a, defector. I'm a defector i used to, i used to man i used to be an assistant manager to big five and i've broken up many a fine conversation between a cashier 
and a customer, you know, in the name of commerce. And I, and I, and, uh, and, uh, and I, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Exoneration for Matt. He, he's evolved beyond this. Yes. No, now I have hour long conversations with people to, to, to reveal their, their, their insights and truths. I think, um, I think Bergman right. would appreciate mumblecore in the modern age. <laughs> hot takes you heard it here first <laughs> but 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 to the back of the film you know i i can't i couldn't help um uh think about like this 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 uh this um the fact that rod serling is a thief right oh because, yes yes i'm yeah. glad yes that you yeah. brought it up right because no the, uh, uh uh there's a twilight zone episode or what was an out of limit no it's not I don't know, the, the Terminator is based on either a Twilight Zone episode or, or an Outer Limits episode. I remember that. I remember thinking like, oh, wow, mm. um, you can see it. But the, the, the one for the heavens uh, is an episode of um, the Twilight Zone where this guy, where death comes to this guy for the Twilight Zone. He's like, going to open up this, like, this, this thing. He's going to do a sale. And he's like, it's supposed to be one for the heavens, right? And that's right. directly stolen from the Seven Seal. The whole plot twist and everything. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think um, even from close to the beginning of the film where uh, Antonius Block and uh, Jans, the squire, where they're on the coast and Jans turns over a monk who then we find is dead. And we get this great big horror movie music cue, which is totally in the vein of the Twilight Zone. Like the second that it happens, and it's one of the only jump scares of the movie, um, which the movie is mostly an art house film, but there are a few horror movie tropes and moments. But that music cue is definitely um, Twilight Zone-esque. I think like a lot of the framing, you know, obviously the black use of black and white was largely a technical consideration of the time, but there is a point where it becomes stylistic. And I think a lot of that, I, I feel like a lot of Twilight Zone episodes were inspired by Ingvar Bergman by the framing and the tones and the symbolism that he would use and the music. Um, there's another Igmar Bergman movie, Hour of the Wolf, that you have this crazy um, cinematography when uh, a scene where uh, Max von Sydow's uh, uh, character is being attacked on the beach and it's very frenetic and, and the kind of drums that were used and that that's always uh, reminded me actually of the opening credits of the Twilight Zone, the kind of drums, you know, kind of thing that's going on there. So, yeah, I think it's very, very Twilight. I, I, I definitely see this as being a predecessor. And to address what Matt was saying about death is that so this film, you know, was inspired by lots of things in the depiction of death and has gone on to inspire lots of things. So, of course, uh, one of the most famous movies to make a reference to this would be Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh. Where, <laughs> where Pop culture. Pop culture shopping art house. <laughs> Bill and Ted also took on the literal embodiment of death. But what I find is pretty funny in, in comparing the two is that in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and a lot of other depictions of literal death in media, uh, death is the Grim Reaper. So he has the hood and he has the scythe, right? The very particular scythe. And what I think is really interesting about the way that Bergman depicts death in the seventh seal 
is that he's much more like a cardinal. He's like a dark cardinal. His hood isn't loose. It's extremely form-fitting, and he has kind of like um, there's a detailing in his um, in his hood and uh, his regalia um, that you wouldn't see with the Grim Reaper. He wears leather gloves. So I think it all has this kind of effect of like him being very formal and it almost makes him uh, a colder in a way that he's less just this bony figure in a giant robe, but is very prim and proper. And that's one thing that I like about death in this movie as well is that he's extremely funny, like, like a lot of the characters in this movie. And he's cunning, you know, if you remember the confession scene where he masks himself as a confessor, as a priest and a confessor. Um, you know, you see him just from that beautiful profile and the lighting, I'm glad you brought up the lighting, David, because the lighting, um, clearly Bergman was hearkening a lot of the whole, the German expressionistic, which we, which really helped to spurn the film noir movement that really was pretty much in any critics professors filmmakers mind the the real the only real original and organic movement to spring out of hollywood right i mean that 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 genre or movement depending on who who defines what film noir is and that's the irony is how hard it is to define these things oftentimes to put into words um but that that kind of that kind of lighting I don't even want to call it stylistic because there are moments of naturalism um it's beyond stylistic it's artistic and it's crafted very deliberately for us to because he uses it like a reveal like in that right. scene, he uses the lighting for different types of reveal and different metaphors. It's very, very specific. It's not just meant to be stylistic. It's meant to be artistic because of that meaningfulness of it. So I think that's a really good point about the appearance of death and that he's not just a scary figure. He is he has comical moments like when he's like when he's sawing the tree i mean he's just like and he's having this very deep philosophical conversation with this clown like director of this troupe and of course that's also wonderful about the troupe the troupe the troupe is obviously extremely sparse now mm-hmm. we know that the black death took about 30% of the european population which is huge and it spanned between the mid 1300s for, for over a decade. And it, it, interestingly enough, I thought about this too, because I thought, well, the last crusade was around 1291, 1292. Mm. And the Black Plague started around 1347. So there's really no way you would have a knight returning from the crusades and encountering the Black Death. But again, this is why I love to say, get your curiosity of history from motion picture. Don't get your history from motion picture. But get your curiosity about motion picture from motion picture. I, I, history. I agree with that, but I also think that I learned more about LA history from watching LA Confidential, Chinatown, and uh-huh. Who Framed Roger Rabbit than... <laughs> than, than, than and, Roger, and not to forget Roger Rabbit. 
I mean, I mean, really, I mean, honestly, I found out about like how they how they rigged the how the water waterways were, were made, um, how the, the 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 union busting of the LAPD, and um, and why we don't have a better public transportation system. Those three movies that I ever learned going to school. Uh, but again, there wasn't a Toontown. That's true. Um, <laughs> Some of the information about the water and 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 Mulholland and all of that is not accurate, by the way. But oh. it was beautifully depicted. I'm not criticizing the film for that, but yeah, no that that is that is true. That is true. But but I mean, like even knowing who Mulholland was, I mean that 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 was not something was that very true. Annoying. So that that's very true. But uh, yeah, you know, watch this movie. I mean, I couldn't help but think, you know, I, I keep comparing and contrasting. Eventually, I'll talk about what actually happened in the movie. <laughs> but also, another thing that reminded me of was, um, do you know, it's kind of these, these stories where there's like all these subplots and these different characters. They have their own like trajectory, so they get to other things. But it reminded me a lot of actually uh, the movie uh, by Tarkovsky, uh, uh, Andre uh, Andre Rublev, right? I think that was made in the six, uh, like uh, late sixties, early seventies. But again, that one's about the great Russian painter, but he's like, it's another travelogue, another like walking through oh, right. the land, meeting I, people. I believe the fancy phrase is picaresque. Yes. Adventure with a little sidekick, you know, talking to people about, um, you know, about the world at large and why things are this way and people having, you know, breaking down, be like, ah, and it, it shouldn't be like, why is this child here? And then, you know, whatever, whatever they complain about. And then, um, or, or whether, whatever their whatever whatever life obstacle they're going to use as a uh, a jump off point to describe their you know five point philosophy, um, that's kind of like w- what I noticed uh, in in this film. But what I really what I really was interested to me was um was how um you know the the, the Sancho Panza in this is a, is a, right. a sidekick is actually kind of a badass. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, the He's squire, like, the squire. He's, yeah. He's Swedish Colin Farrell. <laughs> like mixed with Dustin Hoffman or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I liked about the squire. What I mean, what I, I don't like about him, but what I liked about Bergman's choice in the film was in initially he saves he saves um this woman from being, you know, assaulted in any horrible number of ways. Yeah. That that uh you know, you know that, that there are possible, you know, horrible things that could from happen. from Raval, the thief, uh, uh, priest, right. former priest, yeah, only to mm-hmm. abduct her, right, right. Her. So I mean, I thought that was yeah. like a really good choice by Bergman, to you know, yeah, you know, so yeah. show the complexities of human character and human behavior, and and yet there is this sense that he says, "Look, I'm trying to save you." And and he walks away from her, in yeah. a sense, giving her a choice mm. um, that the other character doesn't. And what struck me too when I was watching it is how all of the ultimately the six remaining who are dancing with death. So we see the mm. seven, the seven becomes the significant number, um, right? And um, they all they all kind of represent. The different virtues hmm. and vices, because you have the, the the adulteress, and you have the glutton, and you have the philosopher, and you have the the devoted, and you have the doubter, and you have hmm. the mute, you know, who then finally speaks up, the the girl, 
And it's just, it's really interesting how they all kind of represent those different aspects of, of the human being, the, the, the different characters, the different aspects of a human being. All of us experience these moments where we're, we're victimized or silent, where we're doubting, where we're faithful. That I think that interplay of Max von Sydow praying and the squire talking about no one listening, for example, and the two coexist. Right. Because they do, because they, because that's what I love about it. When people say it's nihilistic, I would say actually there's a, it's kind of realistic because all of these moments can exist in one human being's life where there's a sense where there's a faithfulness, but there's also this tremendous doubt, you know, and there's an existential crisis and there's moments of being victimized and there's moments of being strong and there's moments of being gluttonous or adulterous and there's moments of being extremely devoted, like the knight's wife you know, like Antonio Slott's mm. wife. And so it's just, I just found that really interesting. And then at the end, you actually finally see all these characters come together before they, you know, before they meet their their fate. I don't want to give it, I mean, most well, people have probably seen it, but I'm afraid to give it to people. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You're being stopped by death. I mean, that's going to end. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to win death. And, a game death and they game all live happily ever after. You know, the moment also, do you remember, I, and I don't know if you guys picked that up too, but, you know, this was clearly very deliberate on Bergman's Park when the, the two, the wife and husband and the child are escaping. Mm-hmm in their wagon, you know, because it's right about the time where death says, I have captured your queen. Because anyone who plays chess knows that when you capture the queen, you're probably on the way to losing, except in some extreme circumstance. So that's a very, that's a very dark turning point in the movie. And yet, we're getting a sense that there's something hopeful happening. What about the character? What about the character who always has the visions? He oh, sees yeah. death when no one else does. He saw the Virgin Mary walking with the baby Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That I love that character, the visionary, you know. I really love how, yeah, that that Yoth is this visionary and he's really this goofball. Um, I I heard in a commentary that he was actually this actor who was kind of considered a joke that he only this is the only good film or great film uh rather that he ever starred in Mm. and that he rose to the level of the production in this film but I really love his innocence and how he's used in this way as being this visionary and he has this heart of gold in wanting to perform and spread joy and and share his visions and then he has this wife who loves him but is really more focused on practical matters is kind of telling him that he's crazy all the time and has even caught him in the act of, of uh, painting the wheel or caught paint on his fingers from a time that he said that the devil painted uh, the wheels oh. of, their, of their wagon. So she knows that he's full of it often, um, but he's determined uh, to spread uh, this message. And what I really love about them is that they just, they have this real love of life and they have this hope for the future. I think that's a lot of what Bergman is saying with this movie. And that was actually something too, that in, in remembering all of the most 
the darkest and most uh, nihilistic moments of this movie, when I watched it again and I saw the scene with the Virgin Mary at the very beginning, it was a lot of trying to reconcile, like, wait a second, I thought this was a very, you know, hardcore atheistic movie. What, what does this mean? Is he completely de decontextualizing this? And I thought that, no, it's, it's part of this conflicting thing that's going on in this movie is that you have these great monologues um, from the Squire Yawns where you're really getting this, like when he sees the witch uh, or when they see the witch uh, uh, about to be burnt or um, you have the dialogue, the last uh, great dialogue with death where death tells um, Block that he has no secrets that not only does he not know the meaning of existence, but that he is unknowing itself. But at the same time, you have Yoff and his family that are singing songs about uh, Jesus Christ and nature and happiness, and he sees the Virgin Mary. So I think it's kind of like a, a the statement of that faith in, in, in something, right? and the willingness to be happy and to look forward in life and to uh, believe in a future is a win in and of itself. Now, whether or not it's ultimately real, I think the film kind of states that probably not, but <laughs> that, it, that it's useful, um, that, it has, that it has meaning um, in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting too, because, and this was the, the, a period of atheism where there was a distinguishing between um, criticizing a faith or belief or existence of God and criticizing religion. Because here we have more that, that kind of sense of separation in this movie. There is the question of is the knight right or wrong um, you know, that he's, you know, begging God for mercy, you know, each one experiences death differently, right, confronts right. death differently, and we have this vision, in this case of the Virgin Mary and Jesus, where, yeah, instead of having the paint on his fingers, he really does see something, and so I think, I don't think, yeah, I don't think Bergman is telling us that there is no God necessary, I think, necessarily I think he's saying that ironically death pre presents a greater liberation than religion in this mm -hmm. case now historically the burning of witches was actually a protestant uh tendency in Scotland we don't really have evidence of witch burnings in fact we don't have any evidence of death death sentences being committed by the church, what would happen is the church, if they found someone guilty of a heresy, would turn them over to the state. Mm. And then the state would actually commit the execution if they so chose to do so. And these situations were actually not as common as what's depicted. So the criticism of religion in this case, I think, is not just Catholicism at this point, because at this point, different denominations already exist. I think it's, I think it is religion in general when it is blind to compassion, where right. death becomes a more compassionate character. And that's interesting. From that's very postmodern, really, we'd say, right? That's very that's a very postmodernist notion. 
So it is, it's very compelling. He really doesn't want to decide for us what we're supposed to think. He really wants us to consider these different perspectives. The reality of how we all receive death differently and the meaning of life differently, you know? Yeah, and going back to what you were saying er, uh, earlier with uh, when death arrives at the end and the squire, what I think is remarkable is that we've gotten a clue before um, towards the beginning of the film that he's afraid of death, that despite all of his bluster and bravado and and he has these great songs where he talks about death. He talks about worms and, and he talks <laughs> yeah. as, uh, do you have to do you have to sing? <laughs> and he says, oh. <laughs> that's so good and there's even this really great scene where they all get together and they're all happy and Yoff is playing the liar and he's about to sing and, and the squire comes and and he says you know I have songs too but there are people here who don't appreciate my song <laughs> who don't appreciate great art or something like that it's really great but anyways so Yoff, despite Draw. all of his bravado is actually terrified of death and we see that, you know, he's, he turns away when the witch is about to be burnt. He says that it's too awful for him. He's sickened when he hears about the effects that the plague has on people. And at the end, you know, most of the other characters look death in the face. And at first, he averts his gaze. He has his eyes to the floor. Um, and only when he hears Block whimpering, <laughs> and 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 praying uh does he then you know become you know oh you know you have to be brave you know to the very end uh kind of thing and i and i and i really love that about this movie it, it is one of those situations where you know there are so many different reactions um i think the wife um inviting death in as a guest is very interesting being very formal um and then of course you have the um the, the, the abducted uh, woman um, who developed Stockholm syndrome, I suppose, because she eventually yeah. uh, becomes very affectionate yeah. uh, towards the squire, or at least seeks comfort with him, that she then sees death as release. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm guessing that the Middle Ages have been very terrible, have been terrible for her. Uh, she's found in an abandoned village where she's almost murdered immediately. And her response to death is excitement you know she hears death coming and she you know gets up and is is very uh, anxious and excited and she starts crying when she sees death and, and just smiles and mm -hmm. uh, and she has the last words it is finished which of course are the last words of jesus mm -hmm. um yeah, that's so i think that's really remarkable too in in that there are a couple of ways in which um uh, Bergman ties Jesus to women in, in this movie. So there's that line, it is finished. And there's also um, the cross cut image that we would see of Jesus on the cross of the statue, the shots of the witch uh, about to be burnt are very Jesus on the cross like. Um, so I think that's kind of remarkable in seeing like this whole, you know, narrative of, um, you know, identity and um, you know victims and people being persecuted for various things 
um, unjustly persecuted. Um, but Matt, what do you have to say? <laughs> Excuse well, me, guys. I'm, I'm listening, but I've got to get a kettle that's that I forgot is on the stove. It's going to about, about to whistle in our faces here. But I'm listening here. Okay, so, so part of me was kind of like I, I, I'm still kind of confused over what I saw. So I'm not 100% sure that like because I'm watching it and I'm I'm seeing him talk to about like you know the, the the there's a little child in that caravan over there, right? And he's like, why do you say that? And he's all like, no reason. Ha ha ha. And then, like later on, he's like the the caravan gets away and they're, they're playing chess. So I'm like, did he did he throw this game in order to like save them? Ooh. And so like that kind of thing, like I, I don't know. And I'm not finding that in any of the criticism. I'm not finding that in any of the, the scholarship on this that like uh, that he threw the game so they could save them. But like I kind of oh, feel like, oh that block through the game. Yeah. Oh, I think it's obvious that he threw the game. Block through the game so the family could escape. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of what what I'm seeing, right? So so he throws the game so they can escape, which is again. The Twilight Zone, they did that, right? Like, right. He, he has the pitch so that he can, he makes the pitch. He says, I'm never going to sail again. But then he's like, well, if you don't make that sale, then I'm going to take this child in your place, right? Okay. So, like, you know, he can obviously drag this game, this, this chess game on. He can even win the chess game. But he, like, just, he throws the game in order so that his family can be saved. Now, what's interesting to me about that is not necessarily that he did that, because that's kind of a trope, right? But what's interesting right. to me is that, like, here we are in this, like, Euro-Christian tradition um, of like an all-powerful God and all these manifestations mm -hmm. of an all-powerful God. And yet this is very like, kind of like Greek. This is like kind of Greek mythology where you can outsmart mm -hmm. the gods or you can outsmart this thing, right? You can outsmart, you can, like death is not like all-powerful. Death is like, death can be outwitted, right? And so that kind of harkens like kind of the Greek tradition of like, um, you know, outsmarting the gods or out like whatever, out, out thinking them, outwitting them. But even when you do, well, the gods will just do this instead. So then you have to be very heroic and self-sacrificing and do that. So that that was kind of interesting to me. That 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 um, not so much interesting. I mean, I was like oh, rewarding myself for having caught that. I, I like that you brought that up. I like that you I like that you brought that up because when you think about the way Max von Sydow played that scene, yeah, you know, you really saw the veracity of that actor because every subtlety. If you watch him, every subtle beat of every thought and emotion is present down to where, you know, like he tries to, he sweeps his cape across the, 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 the board. Yeah. And this is again, yeah. not for, not, not for his sake, which is what death is thinking. That's why he's so focused on him and doesn't see the family getting away because that's that's the thing about death is death is so focused on this individual thinking it's this individual trying to preserve his own life and we talked about jesus we talked about sacrifice you know it's sort of like there's you know it it, it embodies the and the tale of two cities that you know there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend there's a value to what he's doing. Again, that's why I would say you can't just say it's nihilistic, even though it has the nihilistic elements that you mentioned, right. David, because there is this sense of hope in it, that what he did was worthwhile. That like what Matt was saying, that he actually deliberately sacrificed his queen. Right. He sacrificed, and then that moment he sacrificed himself and the queen then again, representing something feminine. We know that if we read gospel stories, Jesus is continually addressing women who would not be considered in that time. 
he mm. gives them a certain dignity, like the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, who would not have even been spoken to. I mean, we know the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was real, but the Samaritans were definitely considered to be of a lesser ilk or a lesser humanity. So not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan. And he addresses her initially as if she's less. I think he referred, it's something about being a dog or something, a dog wouldn't do this or a dog wouldn't do that. And then it completely shifts because she's faithful. She shows a soul and suddenly he elevates her to a whole new level of dignity as a result that she wouldn't have been, been assigned by anyone otherwise and only through that communion, that communication. So I think the intimacy of death, like the intimacy I just described between Jesus and the woman, the intimacy of death in this movie for each character, he dresses each character differently. He comes to the night on a beach. He comes to the, to the director sawing a tree, <laughs> you know? <laughs> he comes to this other woman as a Lord, she, right? And she treats him like a this, my Lord it is, you know, she, she bows down. Um, and then of course the, the wife of the night just simply stands each person commensurate with their life and their character meets death, death differently. So this is really interesting because it gets you thinking about all these different elements that it can look at times almost like avant-garde, like random, just crazy characters but if you really go below the surface to the subtext of the movie, because it's there in spades, you see these are different aspects within a human person, possibly a human soul, because Bergman leaves that question open. Right, right. So speaking to the avant-garde, so I think one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is the sequence with the witch. And you have, it's this really great thing because I feel like it inspires The Exorcist, which comes later. The, mm -hmm. the, plot of, the overall plot of The Exorcist with Father Marin, of course, once again, played by uh, Max Fonsito, is that he is a character who, who, who plays this dangerous gambit in actually summoning or, or playing this part, dealing with this, this demon, this powerful demon that he's come across and hoping that the dark will bring out the light. Um, and so we have this character in the seventh seal, Antonius Block, who's doing the same thing. He is asking the witch if she's seen the devil so that he can talk to God. His crisis of faith is so great that he's willing to reach out to the devil in order to, you know, get his answers, right? So he asked the witch and he asked her one time and she doesn't say anything. And then they come across her again and he asked her again. And I think what's so compelling is that the witch is actually like this scene in the seventh seal is the anti-exorcist. Mm. It's, it's revealed that the woman is just simply insane. Um, and that societal pressures or what, whatever it might be have conferred to her this idea that she is consorting with the devil. She genuinely believes it in her mind. People have um, re- People have established this idea in her head and she utterly believes it. She says, you know, he's all around the, the, the priests and the soldiers, they've seen him and, and he's behind you. 
And then, I mean, the tingles on the back of my neck as then Antonius Block turns around. And of course, he sees nothing, right? We, we might expect him to see death or, or maybe the literal devil will show up, but he sees nothing. And in a way, that's more terrifying. He sees, um, remember what he says to her? He, he looks right into her eyes and we're looking at her eyes and he says, I see fear. All I see is fear. And in fact, in a way, think about it in a way, because I remember a story once told about a, a, by, by one of my behavioral pathology professors that there was a man who was schizophrenic who believed there was uh, a vampire in his attic who was trying to kill his wife. And what came out was they had a boarder who was renting the room and having an affair with his wife. So wow. it wasn't that he was wrong. It was that the way he, the, he, the way he symbolized the events of his <laughs> life were not the way that we would see it normally. And so in a way, I think what also what Bergman is telling us is she is surrounded by the devil. The devil mm -hmm. is all around her. And that's represented by all of these monks who are telling her she consorts with the devil making it a reality. I think that's an element. And if I, I wouldn't have necessarily brought that up if you hadn't pointed that out about reminding us that this is the way she saw things. And then thinking back to that story about that man, it, they, they sadly, because I can definitely say <laughs> as a Catholic that my church, there are things you could criticize in its history and those who would have been accusatory, those who would have come from a place of punishment, of sexism, of misunderstanding, perhaps, I would say these were not the most educated monks. There would have been educated monks who might have recognized her illness, but not these particular monks. And they became that force, uh, that demonic force or that force of the devil. Mm around her so you're right she was insane but that didn't mean she was wrong <laughs> <laughs> right well, what i'm interested well, one of the things i'm interested in though is the fact that max max van Sindo was 28 years old when this film got made you're like there's like people that like i don't know like he looked like 50 his entire life Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, like, look, yeah, he doesn't look 28. I mean, he doesn't look bad. He looks like, you know, like, uh, you know, wisdom, extremely, very strong. But, like, the, you know, but, like, uh, I don't know, there's just some people that look a certain way, but like, so Max von Sindel had a 70 year film career and he recently passed, yeah. Uh, and, um, that's yeah, brilliant. Uh, in fact, that you mentioned The Exorcist, David, and I, I that was an interesting parallel I hadn't considered. It was really eloquently stated. I know that. Um, Max von Sydow tells that his first encounter uh, with Linda Blair in The Exorcist was literally walking into the room, and this was deliberate on the part of William Friedkin, um, that he would walk in and see her for the first time, already made up, already strapped to the bed. So the reaction that he gets from Max von Sydow as Father Marin in the movie is completely authentic. Wow. That, 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 and, it, and it is because you can see there's no acting whatsoever. <laughs> the look on his face when he sees her is so legitimately genuine. <laughs> and you gotta, you gotta appreciate Max von Sydow 
you got to appreciate the directors who deftly directed him. Um, and, and Matt, you're right. It's like, it is ironic. There's something about the gaunt, that long gaunt kind of face. And I think it's also, if you really look at him, it's the look in his eye yeah. that mm. I think makes you feel that he's always older. Right, because if you see him, also you mentioned the 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 um the other Bergman film, the the um, the Howl of the Wolf, the uh and uh, there was uh, through a glass darkly he mm. also did with Bergman, and in all of these movies he does seem to be older than he is, yeah, because of the circumstances he's in, because of the way he responds to them, that gaunt face, and especially his eyes. There's always this look in his eye that's sort of like, um, there's a pure wisdom. He's not putting it on. There must've been something in his character. Um, and I talked to his agent once, Clifford Stevens, cause I really wanted him in one of my mo movies. Um, and, and it was a very interesting conversation actually, because, um, and this is his, was his agent in New York. So coming from a perspective of, and he, you know, he was an older gentleman. So coming from a perspective of the old theater, of the old school, uh, just talking about Max von Sydow's practice of not acting. Max von Sydow, you never catch this guy acting, ever, you know? Even though he had 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 moments in his career, no doubt, of even pre-method um, or without having touched method, but somehow he, em he embodied something as an actor that you don't see every day, that kind of um, authenticity. I don't even want to see, say believability because I don't think it was naturally exuded an authenticity and a sincerity that so came across in cinema. I'm so glad that he, I'm glad he was a theater actor, but I'm glad he, he came to cinema, I think largely through Bergman, because you get all those really remarkable details of his face and, and the look in his eye. Because really his character, I think, was somewhat of the, 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 the core of that wheel, you know, between all the different characters and makes it possible for life to survive, for hope to survive, you know? And he never really makes any harsh judgments, even on death. Did you guys notice mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. He doesn't, of all the characters, he's the least judgmental. He's a philosopher who wants to know. He's not an official who presses, who, who proclaims judgments, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those great pairings, though, of uh, Von Cito and uh, and Bergman, kind of like um, like Fellini and uh, Mastroianni, uh, mm. Orsese and uh, De Niro. Um, what's what's um, or DiCaprio, or, or now DiCaprio, yeah, yeah, uh, and now De Niro again. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, 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 what's the other one? What's the other? Uh, there's another really great, obvious one, the Kurosawa and um, oh, Toshiro Mifune. Mifune yeah. yeah. So it's like one of those, it was one of those, uh, you know, and they, the list goes on. Uh, uh, Herzog and uh, Kinski. I mean, all these like these, these, these. Herzog and Kinski. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Did you guys see My Best Fiend? 
the documentary yeah. my best fiend oh, oh david you gotta see it oh my god my oh wow. my god the fa my fa matt you saw it yeah the moment where he's i don't want to give anything away to david but the moment where he's describing going to the gate the dog what his plans were i was laughing my head off i was like oh my god i believe him i like totally believe him this relationship and that actually goes to show you too that the director's ability to draw because we're talking about max Fonsito, but you're absolutely right the pairing of the actor and the director the director's ability to draw mm -hmm. certain things out from a particular actor that might not have been done otherwise that they will put up with such extreme circumstances and creative <laughs> relationships yeah and i found myself in these situations where people are like how can you put up with that or why do you put up with that? And I'm like, you don't understand. It's creating something remarkable. Yeah. So, I mean, right, Matt, you have something to say about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I just want to feel David, it's, it's a movie about Warner Herzog making a film about a documentary about his friendship <laughs> with Foskin. Friendship. <laughs> friendship and, and, and the, the, the trial and error, the, 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 the difficulties working with Foskinski as well as like, things that came out of it. And, and that partnership but it's kind of, you know the thing about warner herzog like warner herzog is like the real life antonius block right and like that's a good, that's a good comparison i like that Kinsky's like sid vicious from the sex pistols so it's kind of like if antonius block was directing uh, uh sid vicious that's kind of what my best fiend is like nice <laughs> <It's very> like, <laughs> Another day passed, and we was <laughs> <laughs> oh. the natives. The natives. The natives yeah. have offered to kill him for me, but I yeah. think I shall <laughs> allow him to live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, was... <laughs> yeah Herzog's also a little bit got a little bit of Colonel Kurtz in him too. So the whole thing is just a really... <laughs> I mean, like you know, like there's elements of Herzog. Like, who are you to judge? Like, look what you're doing, right? Like, but uh, but uh. Um, it's a it's a, it's a he describes 35 minute rants you know coming from klaus kinski right in the middle of filming you know and things like this where he did I, and i can i can picture that i can picture klaus kinski yelling at the top of his lungs for 35 minutes i can imagine that to be absolutely real yeah i think he played a he played a voicemail message from klaus Time. and he was like i i i laugh now at the time it was not so funny <laughs> horrifically abusive but going back to bergman then i remember reading if i don't know if you either 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 of you are familiar with james hillman a psychologist named james hillman but he wrote a book oh. called the soul's code and in it he describes the daemon which is where we get the word demon, the Greek, the mm. daemon. But the daemon from the Greek is, means the knowing ones, the knowing one or the knowing ones. Okay, so that's, and that kind of is hearkening now, mm. Seventh Seal and Exorcist. You know, how does the demon in the Exorcist, for example, know all of these things, see the future, understand certain things, not everything because remember Max Fonsito says the, the demon 
will will lie, but he'll mix truths with lies. Oh, right. It's right. a psychological attack. So you lose sense of what the truth is. And in the soul's code, he describes that Berkman apparently, from the time he was three, four, five years old, accounts how he would dream about his movies. He would oh. dream scenes that he would later shoot in his life as if he was born with this destiny to make these motion pictures. And apparently all of us have a daemon in our lives, someone who is assigned to us to actually help guide us through to finding our destiny, our dharma, as the Hindus would say, our fate, as others would say, or a mission, as a theological person would say. And what is really, I think, very interesting and compelling about that argument is if you watch the movie Jacob's Ladder, which has nihilistic tones like the Seventh Seal, I'm convinced mm -hmm. that the makers of that film were influenced by Bergman making this film because it has a very nihilistic approach to hope in certain mm -hmm. ways. Certain aspects of religion are criticized, certain things that do not work, certain things that are completely dysfunctional. The objects don't work, but faith does, hope does. And there's a line in that movie where Donnie Aiello as the, as the guardian angel and chiropractor to Tim Robbins' character says, have you ever read Meister Eckhart? And Tim Robbins' character says, no. And he says, wow, you know, smart professor like, professor like you never read Eckhart. Eckhart said, when we stop struggling, we realize that the demons are really angels coming to carry us home. Wow. So that is very much in keeping with the seventh seal. Yeah. Very much in keeping with how the characters ultimately <laughs> respond to the personification of death. Definitely. Right. It's really interesting. This whole notion of what is really liberating. Because we know that religion can be oppressive. And yet there are countries where the governments are so oppressive that religion is the liberation. So it can be argued from both sides. But because it can be oppressive, there are, there are situations where other people outside of religion are liberators, where even demons become liberators, where death becomes a liberator. Mm. Because it's the asking of the existential question that brings us to freedom. Yeah. Right. Beyond right. sense I, of belief, see? Well, actually, yeah, that's pretty fascinating too. And like, if you compare it to um, uh, Theravada Buddhism, for example, mm. um, sees life as an endless uh, cycle of birth and rebirth, and that uh, samsara, or uh, nirvana rather, nirvana is not a heaven state, but a sheer state of, of nothingness. That, mm. that, that, that the best thing, so it's, it's very fascinating to juxtapose the seventh seal and Antonius Block and his existential despair with nothingness to then this Theravadan view of, of that actually being the desired end state of existence. Um, but I think it is kind of fascinating in, in looking that, you know, with heaven, that it's it's the, the concept of it, that it's this, this perfect state of being, maybe, you know, um, you know uh, tying into the Egyptians or the Greeks that, you know, everybody's there. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a reunion with, with everyone. 
Um, then you have the more mystic ideas uh, that it's this kind of um, state of being where you kind of lose your awareness and what have you. And uh, yeah, I, I think this this movie kind of teeters those lines with um, you know heaven or hell or or is it just nothingness or is it for the handmaiden? Is it just it's finished? You know, this is the end. This is the the release from finished. everything. And I think it's actually kind of interesting with the squire is that we never get, I think he, at one point he says the world uh, neither interested, interested in neither heaven or hell or of no interest to either heaven or hell. Um, he lives in a world that makes sense to no one but himself mm. or believable mm. to no one but himself. Mm -hmm. So it is kind yeah. of fascinating that we very never Nietzschean, very Nietzschean, you know, that the squire has kind of a Nietzschean way about him. We never get a sense of like what we know that he loves women, he has songs about him, and he, you know, assaults the woman, but we never get a sense of like what his purpose is. He never talks about a friendship to the to the squire. Um, I mean, we get a sense that he must feel, I mean, to the knight rather. Uh, we feel that he must feel some kind of connection to the knight because when he attacks Revol about the Crusades, he doesn't just say, you sent me. He says, you sent my lord. So he does have some sense of, it seems like some sense of allegiance. Although we don't know if that's just because he was born into this, you know, class uh, society where, you know, he would be inseparable um, from his lord. So... I it's hard to. No, I, I understand the squire. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I am the squire. That fucking <laughs> contempt. And fuck you. You're not going to get to know me. No, no, I, I understand that. I get it. Like, no, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to reveal my cards to these people. You know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> rest of you. I'm not going to tell you what I'm really thinking. Like, that's for me to know. Well, you know, and, and I like that. I now, I now I'm under. I'm getting a deeper in understanding of Matt here. This is very exciting. I'm seeing. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a little the layers of Matt. That's um, I refuse to review this movie because they're all sitting around crying. <laughs> you know, what am I supposed to say? Like it was shameful. They're all sitting around crying about they're gonna die. Yeah, you're gonna die. All death is certain. You know what's not certain. <laughs> what is not. What is not is what you do along the way. And I and I, and I, I understand. I mean, I don't know. If prove everything he did. Obviously, like you know, there's there. I I, I opened up critiquing him. But but like you know that. <laughs> I, think, I mean, the thing I keep thinking about is it's a completely different movie. It's the Oxbow incident with Anthony Quinn and the way he handled it. The only thing I think about in Seven Seals like how would I go out? Like that's like the whole bunch of this the whole time. Like how would I go out? And like, Let's go with a bang, not a whimper. You know, you you remind me of a of a theology professor at Marquette. I think he, a Jesuit who would would have probably confronted Matt and said, "You're a prophet." <laughs> um, the squire character definitely has elements of Saint Peter. He's very devoted to his Lord. In that case, in Peter's case, it was Jesus. He's very devoted, but he's he's not without doubt. He's not without his doubts. Peter sank on the water. The squire does not necessarily accept everything his lord thinks, believes, and does, but still is very loyal to him while still being loyal to himself 
and his own beliefs. So he's he serves his Lord, but he's not a slave to his Lord. And he's got a certain sarcasm that David, I think you and I both can admit that man can embody <laughs> in the best possible way. You, no, you think yeah. this is sarcasm? No, this is, this is a, that was the song of my heart you just heard. Um, we, have, <laughs> we, have, we have some comments from the comment section. Uh, Anna Bermuda says, what is the name of the film? Sorry, I came in late. The Seventh Seal. Uh, Rick Nahara says, I, this is 20 minutes ago. I just came in late. Welcome, Rick. Uh, Diane Bruce offers a question mark. It's it's the seven seal. And then uh, Jose Gloria says Romero looking like a haggard Polly Shore. Oh, a wheeze in the juice. <laughs> <laughs> Any response to, to Jose Gloria? <gasps> actually, I was gonna actually I was gonna say that I actually like David's look here because I see something that looks almost like a a mohawk or a brohawk and. Coming from the post-punk era, I think it's it's actually kind of uh, kind of awesome. Oh, uh, thank you very much. But I love this. I love this comment because uh, actually, there's a poetic uh, nature to it. Look at, look at. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so. Uh, good one. Good one. Very, very, very funny. Very clever. David, like I'm looking at your sideburns here, right? So like, yeah. Why do you decide to like? Where did you decide to like cut the sideburns? Like, if it goes, I feel like if their sideburns were any higher, it would become kind of fascist. But like, cut where they are. It, 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 I feel like the, the length of your sideburns or your sideburn beginnings is a very, it's a political choice. <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> and. Uh, because I've I've given this explanation so many times, I, I think it's only right for you to to explain the political choice that I, yeah. I very consciously make about my side. Mm -hmm. Please, please elucidate for yeah, the audience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know that that that's Dave's commitment to the, the revolution. You know, like he really feels as though, um, you know, that that, <laughs> like that. Uh, right there is uh, is the immortal science of his cyborg, of his cyborg, uh, you know, cybernism, like, you know, like that, you know, along there with like, you know, Marx, Engels, um, and, uh, and, and Romero, like with, 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 the, with the equal length of cyborg. They, they don't have to decide their head shape, but like that, they have the same, you know. I love it. Yeah. Nice. Nice. It's your. Nice. I, it's become a socialist statement. I had no idea. I thought it was. Uh, I just thought it was kind of charming. <laughs> I didn't know, <laughs> well, I didn't know about the political ramifications. Had they, had they gone any higher or low, higher would have indicated <laughs> a, a some very right wing. You know, you would be on here. Uh, lower would just be like it's, you know it's all fun and games. The middle is like you know, you know that's like. You know, I'm ready here. For, I'm here for the people. It's the people's party, uh, and I don't want to be part of revolution. <laughs> like the, what that level of sideburn uh, conveys. Uh, so I would be remiss to mention the parts of this movie that I don't like. Um, even watching it, enjoying it much, much more than I did the first time I watched it. Of course, <laughs> it's ridiculous to say this because this is one of the greatest films of all time. Why um, would you be remiss if you didn't do this? 
because I'm because we're film critics here. Okay. We're the Criterion Collective. We're supposed to be people of you know great taste, you know, and you know great discernment. It's supposed to be. <laughs> you realize this opens yes. up the criticism of like your book and stuff, like the other, you know. Yeah, all right, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just want to say that 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 a lot of the material with Plog the Smith, I really could have done without. Uh, oh, just, okay. Just, this is when we actually get into the territory of broad comedy. And I think actually that the cinematography of the film really flattens out almost to the point where I would think that a, a second unit director or, or the equivalent on this production had actually taken over or Bergman just for whatever reason shot it in the most bland flat way possible in a lot of these scenes. Um, I mean, of course, there's still sparks of great dialogue, and the squire is still very witty. There's the squire talking to Plog at the bar, um, Plog talking to his wife, and his wife, you know, manipulating him with emotions and promises of his favorite meal, and the squire predicting, and everyone watching. But I mean, I I just really feel like. And this segues to a lot of stuff in the forest that really isn't that great. I feel like, you know, the forest is kind of like, they sometimes you refer to the desert of, uh, of the second act. Um, and I really feel that this is where the story kind of gets lost in the forest uh, of the second act for a little while. It kind of, kind of loses the narrative thrust and it just gets kind of broad and, 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 and meaningless for a while what 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 did you two think about that whole section it's an interesting it's an interesting thought and i i can now that you pointed it out i can see what you mean about the flatness of the cinematography that i hadn't thought about um you almost felt as though you had departed aspects of the movie for something like you describe almost like the screwball comedy elements and I wonder, and I, I, I hadn't considered that that was deliberately filmed that way. I, I don't know. Um, and obviously can't speak for Bergman, but it would be interesting if that was deliberate. And if Bergman wanted to contrast that with the seriousness of the existentialism mm. or the nihilism or if he was actually showing more banality, <laughs> which we are, we laugh at it, and yet it's extremely it's extremely banal. So I it would it's an interesting thought. I I feel like it probably was there deliberately, not accidentally. But that's the those are the two thoughts that come to mind as to why he might have done that. So I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Because I'd be interested. To I hear think what that when that was going on, I got kind of bored and started googling like. Please, I started googling more things to say, and that's when I was like, okay, this this movie was made in 1957. Uh, the Twilight Zone episode was in '59, so yeah, that came first. Uh, <laughs> I was like googling, like you know, like oh, I'll just casually drop that in, like I'm just encyclopedic knowledge. So I was like, you know, like so that was that was what was going on when that happened. So Dave's probably right, but I I tend to do that a lot. I tend to like check out a lot when people are talking. You know, that's, uh -huh. or, or or movies are going, or there are things like don't quite quite catch my answer. So I didn't know if that was a failure of Bergman or a failure of me. 
<laughs> what was going on? <laughs> like even when we were talking earlier, and, and I'm like, oh, I forgot Fernando Ray and Boonwell. Like that's that's the best one of all, right? <laughs> so like kind of like. <laughs> but um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, that's hilarious. In fact, I thought of, I'm so glad you brought that up, Matt, because what I was thinking as I was watching, the Seventh Seal. Yeah. And I was looking at that beautiful opening shot, which would have been a crane shot, of course, because we didn't have drones then. And that beautiful opening shot of the beach and the quote from the book of Revelation, right? And David's eyes are getting, because it was, wasn't that powerful. Isn't that, that uh, obvious, that, that bringing you into the story visually like that was freaking amazing. And what I thought to myself was, this is the problem. This is, this is why we struggle to actually witness cinema in this day and age, because a lot of the time, the commercial world is not willing to take the time to, to show us something, to reveal us something. It has to all be in our face right away. Boom. We're not allowed, we're not given the time to be lifted and lowered into a story. Yeah. And we're not given the time to consider the story. We're supposed to experience it really hard, really fast, because that's what commercialism says. So you know that if Bergman were to make the seventh seal now, all the distributors and American film market would go, well, this is boring. Well, this is taking too long. Well, what's the genre? What's the genre? Drama? Ugh. You know, and so, and this is, this is a tragedy. This is why, and what's difficult too about cinema is that if you go into like almost like experimental level or independent, this is why people have attitude about even art house now because you have this ability through the digital age to have people just pick up a camera and say, I'm making a movie. And oftentimes, sadly, it isn't good. The acting is lacking, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so we really do need sort of um, this people's movement. I love that when, when Matt describes people's movements, we need people's movements. We need the ability to decide for ourselves what is art? What is cinema? Because my argument is and always will be when it's art, it's not good or bad because it's art. If you perceive it as bad, it's not art. <laughs> it's just not, it's just, it's just not art. Because art is something beyond good and bad. <laughs> Matt laughs because he knows what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and, I, and so that was as a as a filmmaker myself that was really my struggle watching this thinking this is so cinematic and it shaped cinema and it's so beautiful and the performances are really outstanding even the banality even the moments where it's totally banal you know and, and the 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 smith and his wife and everything and yet these are great performances yeah one but the one thing in the beginning when, i would have i'll start about no, no, please. You were gonna. I, 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 mean, I, would, I, would have, I would have stretched out between the, the point of uh, the, when we when we we're seeing the beach and the crane shot, and then the beginning um, of the of, of them playing chess, right? Because I felt like okay, so so we have this like you know this crane shot, we have this you know, the, the the quote from Revelations, and then 
so it's like this is kind of the establishment shot there's establishment like we're establishing where we're at and then almost immediately he's playing chess with he's playing chess with death so for me i would either prefer you play chess you just just either like don't like set the story off that quickly either either jump me in the middle of the story like okay we're playing chess and like oh my god and then then explain to me what the hell happened or establish it do this do this and then set the inciting incident like build the world a little more before the inciting incident like you know what i'm saying like either start me at the inciting incident like i'm in the midst of the inciting incident or whatever but like don't give me the inciting incident 40 seconds in like either either <laughs> you know what i mean like you know, you know that's just my take right, right. Take. i like i like world building more so that's not even a critique. That's just a taste. That's a question of taste. Because I mean, obviously, you it's a question of taste, and it doesn't yeah. make it bad or wrong. It's this is how I would have liked to have seen this. Yeah. For me, that would have probably drawn me into the story uh, in a very different way. And see, now for me, I love the opening. That for me, the opening is like perfection. Well, the opening me, without great. that opening, I would feel very differently about the seventh seal. Right. I would okay. not. I, there's something that gives me a sense of the core of this movie in that opening sequence. Right, no, the opening scene's great. The opening scene's great, but I'm saying there's opening scene and then there's like a 10 second gap where, where, where like you're seeing someone collect water or, or something, something happens to break the opening scene from them playing chess, right? So there's like yeah. this little second to like, let you know, okay, now something else is happening. And that's wow. something is the inciting incident, right? And so like, that was like, to me, I like, I, it's, just, it's just a matter of taste. Like, there's a really, really well-constructed movie um, that was made uh, last year that everyone like really loved just because of how well-constructed it was, which was like, Knives Out, right? Everyone, a lot of people loved it because just like how well it was made and all that. But for me, when they have the cup in the very, very beginning and the cup's going to come back at the very, very end, I don't like that. I like, give me that cup. <laughs> give me 10 minutes in. I don't like the beginning just to the end. That's why I like the Coen Brothers. My, that's, what, that's my only key about the Coen Brothers. Like, all, movies all begin with the shot that it's going to end with, you know? Even when they make silly mm. movies, that's what happens. Like, uh, uh, Lady mm. it opens, we're on the bridge, it's going to end, we're on the bridge. It opens with this, it's going to end with this. So whatever yeah, it opens with, movie it's began end. on the shore, it ends on the shore. What's the, what's the one, what's the, what's the one with, um, what's the one with Catherine Jedi Jones and, and George Clooney, Intolerable Cruelty. It begins oh. with Jeffrey Rush, like, ha, 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 ha. And it ends with Jeffrey Rush, <laughs> right like what the fuck's jeffrey rush gotta do with this movie right so like he's like this incidental character but since it began with jeffrey rush it must end with jeffrey rush you know it must end with it begins with jeffrey rush's ponytail like flowing in the wind and it must end with jeffrey rush's ponytail flowing now once again That's interesting I, so, like, so, like, that, I don't like that i like i like i like i like the the conclusion to be introduced somewhere in the middle and and, and that, I love, I, i'm sorry all right, all right. Yeah, I I'd like to beats. make some comments on, on this. Yeah, on this I love segment. the beats. I like the beats in the opening. And when death, so there, it's casual. Death shows up casually in the middle of, of normal everyday activity so that it's not over dramatized. That's my, that's kind of my, but I mean, your, your, your point is valid because it's like, but this is what I like. This is what I would like to see. So that doesn't invalidate that. That's totally valid. And yet for me, I'm just like, yeah, the, the casualness of this, the way death, just shows up in everyday life. Here's someone scooping water one minute, then all of a sudden death is on the beach. Then they're playing chesty. For me, that's like that's like perfect. I know, I know, so, I know you can make a point. Yeah. Let me just say this real quick. I'm not saying death should have came with a marching band. I'm not saying you should have came with a <laughs> All I'm saying is I want to see more casual life before death comes in. 
show me the scoop in water. Now show me like, let's tell a joke. Now show me some other things. Like show me a little bit more before you do that. That's just, that's just, that's just my taste. That's just the way. You I wanted like. more time. He oh, wanted more time. Really a three course meal. Not just, you can't just give me like, don't give me my drink and then my meal. Give me a salad. Like, you know, like <laughs> breadsticks. You know, like that's, that's me. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's a, it, to continue with the meal metaphor. It's almost like getting a little bit of steak and then being told, okay, no, you're not going to get that for another twenty minutes. You know, it's like the most delicious, best part, right? But what it does, I think, is that it what what Gene was saying is very quickly establishes a tone. It puts you into the world and immediately, like this is a an extremely serious movie. And also darkly comedic, and we're going to be throwing everything at you immediately, um, so that it's almost like a fairy tale, right? Like something else that always bothered me about this is that we're never shown a ship, right? So in watching this for the first time, or even every time that I watch it, is like, is this just a budgetary restraint, or are they already dead? You know, characters on the shore, you know, so it's like, are they dead men walking? right and i think you could, i don't think you're supposed to take it on that level but i think that the opportunity for that is definitely there because we are shown we we aren't shown a ship we wonder where did these horses come from right the horses are just there they're just lying out on the shore how did they get there right and the the the, the waves crash in with the chessboard so it's very much like you know the the eternal sea of you know like they've already traveled from you know the afterlife or what have you um but i think i think there's something very powerful in that but i agree kind of like with what matt's saying is that you lose something to a certain extent in in having um you know the best part the central conflict of the movie to a certain extent is you know blocks game with death his chess game with death right um but you lose something in being exposed to that immediately and then it kind of peters off i think one of the only things that sustains that thread is that you're introduced to the mystery of why why does block um not want to die right away he says that's you know for me to know you know that's my business and then in the confessional we find out it's because he wants to have one last meaningful act. And then his last game, we see that act fulfilled. His oh, last that's good. That's good. Being to save, to, to save good people, um, legitimately uh, kind people. So, but yeah, I, you know, it, it's one of those things, right? Um, In but, keeping with the knighted character, you know, that's really, I love that you describe that too. And Matt, now I kind of understand why you would have liked to have sort of like the metaphor of the meal, you would have liked to have savored the opening longer. You wished yeah. you could have saved the, and I think that that's the challenge is like, because I think the narrative for Bergman is death comes when death comes. And, and, and death, and often unexpectedly, one minute you're climbing a tree, the next minute you're falling out of it. Um, and, and, and that was what the character was saying was, I want, you know, I want, I want more time. Don't I get more time? You know? And so in a way, if we think about it, 
that's what Bergman has done to us in the very opening is he said to us, no, you, you don't, you get the time you get and you don't get more time. So maybe in a way there was a genius to constructing it that way because we find ourselves saying, no, no, I want, <laughs> this is the theme of the movie, but I want more time. Mm. I want more. And I, God, that, that, that whole seeing that that way, I love the way you describe that, David, that he, he is looking for the meaning. He is looking for the meaning of life. And what we know about that is what, what the philosopher is looking for, because he is a philosopher, his character. He's a knight by profession, but he's a philosopher by vocation. And he wants to know the meaning of life, but what he really wants to know is the meaning of his life. Right, right, right. He really wants to know the meaning of his life. Was it worthwhile? Was it worthwhile to go to the Crusades? The squire says no. The knight still believes that maybe that is the case because he's still holding on to that hope that there's meaning. And just as you say, he found the he finds the meaning when he helps to free this young family with the small child clearly symbolizing that hope of the future. That's very compelling. That's really compelling because then he sort of, and we see it in Max von Sydow, that's what I think is so brilliant in that chess game, in that last chess game, he sort of, because he says, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to capture your kingdom. You're going to be checkmated in one move, Mm -hmm. you know, and he almost looks resolved rather than frightened now. He has this resolution in his face. He has this kind of a like, um, I don't, I wouldn't even want to try to pretend to do it, but it was like, I am at peace and I feel joy because the meaning has been made known to me. His face says that all in that moment. It's so powerful. It's so sincere, you know. And I think that's where, see, that's where Bergman, it's, I just can't possibly say, there's a nihilism to it and there's a humor to it, a dark humor to it, but it's, but it's rather hopeful, actually, that there, that the meaning of life is, is you can lay down your life for a friend, you can sacrifice, you can discover love, you can discover meaning in your life, and therefore you can accept the end of it, you know? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a film about obligation and sacrifice and duty and you know, yeah. I mean, but like the squire, I, but I feel, I, but I feel kind of like the squire. <laughs> what? Like, what? Well, uh, well, let me address. Jane makes the most beautiful summation of the meaning of this film. It's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But back to the squire, which is why we know he is the squire. I know, I know. Yeah, whatever, whatever, Antonios, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Very pretty words. talk about it. You just do it like you're supposed to. And then when you explain it, it's like killing a joke. It's like, you know, there's a song, uh, 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 a Bob Dylan song called um, Buckets of Rain, right? And Buckets of Rain ends with this. Buckets of Rain is like something like, life is sad, life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do, and you do it well. I do it for you, honey baby, can't you tell? And that's it. That, that's it. And so he explained it. It's like, man, like, yeah, of course. Like, shit. No, shit. <laughs> when it's explained, when it's explained, I, 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 get, I get this feeling in the pit of my stomach. Like, that's right. That's what you do. 
So wait, you're our resident squire, so you can help us answer this question. Because now I want to ask you as our resident squire, why did the squire, that he saves the girl. Yeah. He saves the actor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's clearly not about a sense of obligation. He's obliged, he's obliged to my lord. He's obliged to Antonius. Yeah. But why does he do this? What would be his motivation for doing that? His hatred of Ravel. He's more motivated by the fact that he hates Ravel than to, 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 than to help these people out. Interesting. Because he hates bullies. And he okay. cannot stand people who pick on on the weak and who 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 uh, appoint themselves as the, as the strong um, because they pick on the weak. And so this this idea that you know you allow someone to to walk around and do this to other people um, is 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 abhorrent. And if, if you can do something, you should do something. You must prevent. You cannot allow people to act that way. And you cannot allow people. It's not so much you can you, you cannot allow people to be treated that way, but you cannot all you can also not allow people to act that way. The fact that people think they can go around doing that kind of things to people. Um, and you have the ability to stop it, you do. And so that's just kind of that, that, that it, it's really even more so than, the, the, even more so than concern for those people, right? Yeah. It's like, we keep talking it's about- not a belief in the greater good. It's, no. it's the fight against <laughs> evil. It's more the fight against evil than a right. belief in greater good is what you're saying. Right, 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 right. So, so like, the elements of the movie I don't like, right? If we're gonna be honest, right? It's like, what makes this family so good? Who gives a shit about these <laughs> people? Like, you know, you know, like uh, you've seen that what's that with the uh, uh, what's it uh, wow. inherent vice, right? It ends he like just, he's no good. Like his 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 girlfriend's no good. All these people are no good. But he, he reunites Owen Wilson with the family, and they're good. Well, what's so good about them? Like I don't like I don't like I don't like. Oh, it's the restoration of this little family. Now they're good. No. And so what's so good about this little family? This little squire with guys delusionally keep seeing things. Like you know, like you know, like you know. Like they bring joy to the masses, Massimo. That's what makes them so good. They make light of make light of dark things in this dark time. That's what makes yeah. them so good. And they but love you see that other. he's right. Do you see how I said like they represent all these different aspects of the human spirit? Because I think we, would, however, however hopeful we might be, there are times where we're so sick of flowery language. I mean, have you guys ever sat at an open mic and just been like, oh God, here we go. Oh God, oh. You know? And you're like, I'm all for like, I love, you know, expression and creativity, but oh my God, why is this oh. person going to waste two minutes well, of my life well, right now as we're setting this? And, and, you know, so I think there is a place for the squire and all of us to say, you know, I, I don't care necessarily about those things. I'm just so sick of the, the, of the bastards of the world, yeah. you know, that I'm gonna, I'm going to do away with them. Um, whereas the night is clearly seeking a different kind of meaning. Yeah. But do we all experience those moments? Probably. Probably. I want to say though, what, what Gene said was, Gene, what you said was very beautiful. And I wasn't like, uh, but it was, it, was, it was so beautiful and it, it was so deep and it was so profound that I didn't want, I just, you know, my, this part of my brain just wanted to hear that. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a joke. I'm not going to cry. You know, like, and I get very like, uh, you know, it's a uh, yeah. So so th there's a part of that squire, that squire character that I deeply identify with. That like uh, is very much and 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 when I see him and I, and I see him fight Ravel, it's it's obvious to me why what's going on here. Mm. It's not because he's he, he thinks he sees the hope and the beauty and the wonder of these people. It's he sees this guy 
and he's not going to let this happen. And he's just not going to let this happen. And, uh, and he has the power to stop it. So he stops it. And because uh, that's what you do. Because life is hard. And life is yeah. a must. And you do what you can and you do what you want. And you don't seek praise for it. You just do it. You know, and like, and that's, and that's, you know, you seek praise for other things, you know, but you don't. You and, don't you, and you know, the thing about that is that despite himself, despite his, um, his reluctance or even cynicism or skepticism, but I'd say almost cynicism on the part of the, the squire. And um, I would say that uh, despite that, it's like, it's like the phrasing, we know a tree by its fruits, that he does end up serving the good, whether he believes in it or not. See, that's the irony of it, is that in his way, he does serve the greater good. So it's not so much about intention or what you believe Bergman is telling us. It's the actions of your life that carry the meaning. Yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Okay. So it's a transcendence of religion. There's definitely a mysticism to Bergman that I do really appreciate. I think we just have, we all have different concepts of what it means to be a de like a decent human being, right? And like for some people to be a decent human being means like to be nurturing and self-sacrificing and giving of your time and giving of your energy and giving, right? And so, like, I think for me, I think that, you know, like, uh, when I think about being like a decent human being, it's deeply like the squire, which is like, like, you, you, you do what you can to prevent certain things from happening, or you, you do what you can to, like, you know, to, to, you fight the good fight. You and, cut through the BS. Yeah, but you don't, but you don't expect rewards for that, that, for that, that aspect of, like, like, you know, okay, for me, I, like, I, I write poetry, and, and I, and I, and I want my poetry to be remembered, and, and thought of and studied and you know admired and all those of that and for those things yeah i do i do i do put myself in 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 a in a in a, in a world of, of jealous competition right of just of trying to fight for my place in the world right but in terms of like you know being a person in the world who has friends and has loyalties and has this and that i don't i don't want to be i don't want to be talked about publicly as like he's a good friend or you know talk, talk about publicly like oh he's a good this or he's a really loyal friend or he does this or he makes this sacrifice or yeah you know he's you know if you're talking to him if you've ever seen the way he was he's a good son I, I don't want people talking about that stuff that's not your business mm -hmm. that's, 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 that's not your life that, that's not that i don't want to be rewarded for these kind of things you know i want i or or, or even i don't even reward it i don't even want people talking about that kind of stuff like that's not just talk about my poetry like you know like i leave the, leave my inner leave my inner life to my inner life you know leave them alone and so that's kind of how i feel about uh when i see the squire i see him as a private guy i see him as someone who's just like he has his life and his life is, he has his own and for him to be a decent person is to like go out in the world and just do that thing and and, and that's why there's no big speeches it's, like all these other people delivering these speeches about like yeah, why well, he has the biggest speeches in the whole movie he well, has less the least self-important of speeches you but yeah, you're right, you're he, right. he even says you ask me for a word and i'll give you two yeah so that's he true. actually I, I, is the most. We, does that sound like someone we know? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> about why people shouldn't deliver speeches. I'm delivering a speech right now about like why you know your speeches should be less self-congratulatory. <laughs> like, and that goes to everyone watching and now in the future. Stop! You're you're, you're too really good, David. That's you're really tough. On yourself. <laughs> As I okay. a fellow writer, you're far too easy on yourself sometimes. <laughs> So now we're talking about the good.
goodness of people. Now, yeah. in a moral philosophy, many, many moral philosophers throughout the ages have tried to come up with a universal system of ethics. Yeah. And of course, frequently failed miserably. But there was one who is often hailed as coming the closest if anyone has accomplished it. And that was Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher who uh, was a virgin and spent his whole life thinking about this. So we have to give him some credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he said, he said he put forth what he called the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative says that people are not means, they are ends in themselves. If you accomplish that kind of empathy, you have achieved morality, which is very powerful because I think the squire does achieve that in his actions. It's not about his attitudes. It's about his actions. Also, with the think about the Lisa character by the end. She is grossly unfaithful. Oh. But at the very last moment, when her, the smith says Lisa curtsy to our guest, and without even flinching or questioning for the very first time, we see this character actually do it. She actually shows a faithfulness at the very end. So we have a sense that even the Lisa character with all of her adultery and all of her gluttony, because remember she lays out the picnic, you know, and she's willing to just go off with this guy and then tell her husband to kill him as if he's the blameworthy one, you know, but at the very end, there's a faithfulness, <laughs> right? So it's really, I, I, think, I think Bergman is definitely pointing to the your actions are meaningful it's your actions that become meaningful not your personality not your attitude not even what you did in your past but how do you confront your future your present your destiny that's what is going to reveal your dignity i think that's what he's trying to say if I may be so bold as to analyze Bergman's mind. <laughs> he might be in his grave right now going, nah, little philosopher girl, you don't know. But that's kind of how I feel. And, and I just, that, that, that scene where they're all in frame finally before death and each one has a different expression, but all of them are fixed on him. It's, it's such a great moment. It's such a great moment, a, a wonderful cinematic moment because of the meaningfulness of that, I think. What I love about that moment too is, is uh, the way that it's shot, or yeah, in addition to the way that it's shot is that um, we only get that one clip of death in the background, right? And then the camera, or just to the left or right of the camera is death. So the camera essentially becomes the character of death, uh, you know, in this in this tight shot with them. So we get that 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 sense of immediacy, and it harkens back to at the beginning with uh, the troop leader Scott, you know, or Scat or whatever his name is. He puts the mask on, and he just starts randomly delivering part of his monologue, and the camera zooms in, you know, mm -hmm. on him, and he, it's mm -hmm. like he's giving us 
the the audience itself um, this monologue. And basically what he says, you know, is life is short and, you know, cherish the time that you have. And it's all kind of like played as a joke. But I feel like that to a certain extent, too, is like in tying back to the end is kind of like, a, you know, another um, way for Bergman to, uh, you know, put a statement or, or, or summarize his work. But they're That's just cool. so... The joke becomes serious. The joke right. becomes serious. Yeah. Life that starts as a joke becomes deadly serious, <laughs> right? That's really, that's very cool. That's very cool. Well, well, David, I know you were also a philosophy major. Do you have a, a, a philosopher to tie this to? Uh, a philosopher, well, oh, okay. Well, this this movie really reminds me of, of the existentialists, of Sartre and Camus. Um, and I really feel like that the squire at the end you know why? Why I feel so passionate is he reminds me of of one of these of one of these uh, philosophers, Sartre or Camus. You know, shouting out, you know, yes, life is meaningless, but howl into the darkness. You know, go out defiantly, be be like Sisyphus, pushing that boulder up. You know, you'll fail. It'll it'll fail. You'll fail. It'll come down the other side. But what do you do? You push it back up again. The struggle uh, is is meaning you know and and antonius block even himself he has he has a moment like that where he says you know i feel you know in my veins and 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 he rejoices in the game with death you know he takes takes uh takes some joy in that so yeah I, I, that was something too that i was tracing in, in going back to existentialism is tracing back see it's you know, we've we've referenced referenced little bits of that with this movie is that how tied this movie is with the whole movement, art movement of modernism, right? So it follows World War II, and this being another huge period in in history in which people are really starting to question the traditional mores of society. They've been through a profound shift in consciousness. The world has expanded. And people have lived through all of these horrors, right? And also in the 50s, we're seeing the emergence of two global superpowers and the beginnings of the Cold War. So this movie, or, or in the Cold War, so this movie is, made, is a Cold War film. The existential threat that is being referred to metaphorically is not a disease. You know, like, as I said, I watch this movie and I see it as a metaphor for what we're going through right now with the pandemic, but that the existential threat that people are talking about at the inn, right, and the seventh seal and all of this imagery is that Bergman, um, a lot of people have said that, that he's talking about the nuclear apocalypse. He's talking about, you know, this <laughs> end of world brought on by nuclear weapons. Um, so I think that's very informative, right? But why I love movies like this, and the birds, uh, Hitchcock's The Birds has another scene that's almost exactly like this when, uh, like the inn scene in The Seventh Seal is when they're in the, the diner in The Birds in the city and they have all the people, you know, is this the end of the world and could, the birds are doing this? And why, why is this happening? And, you know, it's this whole foreboding, you know, element. And I think that what I love about these scenes is that they're tied probably into the Cold War and people's fears of the end of the world. But 
I feel like they're powerful no matter what you, when you watch them, is that people throughout the decades have always had some kind of existential fears and that these moments just seem relatable uh, no, no matter when you're watching them. The, philosophers, the philosophers have thus far only interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it. Now I've <laughs> set you up. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, that was uh, that, that's Karl Marx. <laughs> well, you know, I just wanted to sound smart. You know. I know. I know. No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, you know what? <laughs> Gene Marie, you walk you into like a, a little rivalry between me and this gentleman. That of. Uh, I, I love it. I love the rivalry. It's very good natured. It's, little, it's uh, it seems to be well placed. Well placed. I. <laughs> I think uh, I, oh, think I let, it, let it be said and let it be admitted. I'm sorry to address the rivalry. Matt is the superior chess player, so he is oh. in this situation. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I do, I do love chess, and I'm far, far from a master player. But I learned from my godfather, who always taught me that the most defensive and aggressive move is always the best. I suppose there is an element of chess to life. I think that that's, I, I, I must say that scene where death appears in the hallway of the knight's estate reminded me so much of Nosferatu. Mm. Like I hadn't seen this in a while and I was like, wow, that there's no doubt in my mind, like I said earlier, that Bergman is influenced by German expressionism. The, the lighting, the the even the detail, the 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 uh, the construction of a scene, the uh, it it speaks to me of German expressions without imitating it. Certainly, he has his own style, but there the influence is present. What I thought of as you were talking to David about Camus, I'm reminded. I don't know if you remember in the Myth of Sisyphus where Camus says, I have never seen anyone die from the for the ontological argument. I've never seen anyone die <laughs> for the ontological argument. Camus had a sufficient respect for oh, faith yeah. that he understood that those who were willing to die for their faith, it wasn't because they'd been reasoned into it in the first place. Right, right. And right. so when, when you have Antonius very sincerely praying for mercy for everyone not just himself because that's his character and you have the squire now not so much sarcastic but now feeling those existential trembles of dread saying why do you pray to there's no one there and the wife says you know shh shh as if to say, it's not because you're wrong and he's right. It's because we're all confronting our humanity at this moment. And anything that you can say, anything that you can reason is not going to have the value. And I think the squire knows that, which is why he's quiet in that moment then. You see, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But not before he registers his protest. He says, I will <laughs> <laughs> to the very end 
to the very end, he understood, like, I do not agree with, you know, like, you know, because life is hard and like, <laughs> you, you do what you must. Matt's going to go out kicking, so, I guess. So, so Matt, like, Matt, 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 Matt. Not Matt. going gentle into that good night. I, I would like to, on, on the record, uh, wherever this may end up, if it ends up anywhere, I would like a record of that beautiful story that you shared through social media about your own okay. experience with Bergman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we probably should we probably should like do like a little round thing to wrap up because this 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 talk has actually gone long on longer than the movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, really, that's more than an hour. That's how you know it's a great movie. Yeah, that's how you know it's a great movie. So uh, yeah, so uh, uh, my first memory of of, of the cinema is actually that I was a Bergman fan at the age of four. And the reason I was, a, you know, because I, I was a very sophisticated, um, how, what, you're not a toddler at four. I'm not sure. I was a sophisticated young child, right? I was a um, preschooler. Preschooler. Yeah, right. I, yeah. Yeah. No, but no, the truth is, um, and I was quoting Shakespeare at three. But the only reason I was quoting Shakespeare at three was because my mother took me to see Shakespeare in the park. And um, I was playing with, I was playing with my toys when I came back and, and, and we'd seen Hamlet in the park. And she comes to me and she says, Man, you know, Mijo, you got, before you put those toys, you got to put, you got to deal with those. And I said, mother, speak to me no more. So very similarly. <laughs> and she regretted yeah, yeah. in that moment yeah, yeah, taking right. you to Hamlet. But <laughs> that actually is interesting, isn't it? Because now we see Matt, the wordsmith. And going back to, you know, James Hillman and Ingmar Bergman and the Souls Code, James Hillman would say, it was already inside of you. This thing, this, this poetry was not something that was put upon you, but actually something that was drawn out from inside of you. Yeah. That's not to say that nature nurture isn't real, that your environment didn't play a role, but we could, we could introduce anyone to Shakespeare or to poetry and it, they may suffer an unfortunate immunity to it. Right? <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it. Because poetry is a good virus, yeah. whereas Corona is not. It was a bad one. <laughs> so, 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 this is there's that. So, in addition to taking me to Shakespeare in the Park, she would also would also go. This is, you know, grew up in El Sereno, so she would go to the Alhambra Library where they had a bigger a bigger library, bigger collection, and. Um, we would check out movies too. And one of the movies we used to check out was The Magic Flute, which mm. was, uh, which was, you know, Ingmar Bergman's adaptation of The Magic Flute. And for whatever reason, I really loved The Magic Flute. I really loved it as a kid. So like, this is actually not only my first introduction to world cinema, foreign films, um, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you call it, you know, art house, whatever. Uh, it was actually my first movie of memory. My, my first memory of, of, of any movie whatsoever uh, was actually that of Ingmar Bergman's The Magic Flute. So you know, the magic flute is my introduction to film. So I thought, you know, we, we're starting the series. It was, it was David's recommendation, but, you know, I immediately agreed to it because uh, our immediately, uh, immediately uh, made, you know, voted yes, uh, immediately registered a yay uh, because, uh, you know, what better way to start than Bergman? I mean, he's from, for me. I mean, that was, that, that was my introduction to, to film. And uh, as a lifelong lover of the cinema, you know, I thought that was a really cool. I like that story. How about you, David? What was your introduction to cinema? Do you remember? Uh, introduction to cinema. Um, Bill and Ted's focus journey. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that actually a lot of the cartoons that I grew up 
with had references to a lot of these art films of the 50s and 60s. So there were a lot of times where I had a primer, you know, going in um, that was that was beneficial. Um, and I really appreciate that 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 the art at that time was about art, you know, reflected art. So that that definitely helped. Um, I remember, you know, my parents going, us going to drive in movies, right? So that being that not that it was not only that it was just, uh, you know, going to the movies, but this whole other experience, communal and, you know, very exciting, all these cars and commotion and, and lines for food and whatnot. Um, and um, I mean, at a certain point, I watched Star Wars and that changed my whole life and, uh, and that got me interested for the first for the first time in really learning how films were made. Um, and mm. So watching documentaries about film and learning more about film and that taking me to the point where then I decided I wanted to become a film major and then studying film. Um, as I told Matt, originally, uh, you know, wanting to be a screenwriter and a director to then um, ending up failing in the endeavor of getting to the screenwriting program at USC but getting accepted into the critical studies department. So I feel like that has indefinitely changed the course of my life and really made me the person that I am today. I probably wouldn't be doing this uh, right now, you know, were it not for that. So I think that that's had a huge impact. That's interesting. Yeah, that's it's it. You, you brought up something so interesting to me, which is how, how often when we look back on our lives, certain experiences like just what program we get into or what university we do or don't get into or where we live or someone we develop a relationship with can have this huge impact on the trajectory of our life. You know, that's really interesting. Cause it's funny, as you were talking, I was, I was gonna mention John August, if you know John August, who was in the screenwriting program at USC, he has, a, he has a podcast, a very interesting podcast. And he mentions the thing about, you know, how many scripts employ the, you know, the beginning is the end, you know, or the beginning is the middle and then mm. harkens to the end. You know, my, my first experience with a movie was Bambi. <laughs> I was pretty little and I sat through I sat in the theater and watched it twice with my family wow um and I think the thing that always struck me the most was how emotional cinema could be because I really cried when Bambi's mother died I was very very overwrought and I don't know if I'd call that cinema per se I don't want to be a snob but obviously yeah. Later in my life, I would go to the landmark theaters. I have to credit the landmark theaters a lot for my passion and interest in cinema, particularly foreign and art house cinema, because the landmark would screen movies that large chains would never screen, and we would get to see them the way they were intended. You know, so you're talking about things like David Lynch's Eraserhead or John Waters' Polyester or even the Beatles Magical Mystery Tour, or, you know, I would go to see these films as a young person. I remember being like 11 years old and getting like a grilled cheese sandwich at, at the, the drugstore next door where they had a, a lunch counter and then going to watch the movies and just like in this huge, what they called the movie palaces for a reason 
because the Oriental Theater in my hometown, which is now politically incorrect, it would have been called, I believe, the, the Asian Theater. <laughs> so, but, and the Oriental Drugs would have been very politically incorrect on many levels, but um, which was the, the drugstore next door. But these absolutely gorgeous, ornate architectural structures, and you go in and you'd sit down and you would experience with the audience. I think that was a big thing too, like in Cinema Paradiso, you would experience with an audience, a communal, uh, a communal um, encounter of something that clearly wasn't just made for commercial purposes, right? That had a cinematic purpose, an artistic purpose, which I think the seventh seal certainly fulfills in spades. And I would love to see maybe, I mean, bringing in the whole pandemic, what I really hope, and actually this conversation has given me hope since part of our message is hope in a, in a plague, um, that people will recognize the value and meaning and necessity of art. I think we got to a place in our society where we viewed much like religion or belief in God, especially in, in this society, in, lux in luxury societies, art becomes a luxury. Art, art isn't a necessity anymore, hmm. but it is. And I think we realize that now we're seeing it now in this situation. So I hope Art House makes a really big comeback in all of this. And art makes a really big comeback in all of this because people realize how important it is. I think Matt is like, Gene, stop talking. No, no, no. Well, I mean, no, 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 no. I'm but, a little verbose, but, but no, 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 no. But but uh, we are like hitting at the, the near the two hour point. So I was wondering, if, uh, Jimmy, you could introduce what we're going to be talking about next week. Oh, <laughs> Dave is cheering. Um, so we've we the Criterion Collective yeah. have selected the 1963 novel adaptation from uh, uh, from uh, or, or movie adaptation of the novel by William Golding, Lord of the Flies. So uh, next week, Saturday, uh, 1 p.m. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody. Uh, anyone else, I mean, anyone else uh, final thoughts? Thanks for bringing us together, you guys. Thank you. Dude, uh, final thought for me. Life is sad, life is a bust. <laughs> All you can do is do what you must. <laughs> do what you must. <laughs> Open like a true squire. <laughs> <laughs>